This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone. It's Andrea Judici, and you are at the um, third session of the GDUI Convention 2021 program. I'm going to start today with giving the opening CEU code that is four. Five, five, six, three. Before I turn to our panelists today, just wanted to make a couple of really quick announcements. Everyone to remind you that we have a couple of specials running here at GDUI. We have the membership special, which is really cool. If you join between from today until the end of convention, which is of course the 23rd, you will get six months free of membership. So for $25, you'll be a member from now until the end of 2022. And the other special that we have is a merchandise special. And this is a really awesome way for you to get um, all of your shopping done in one spot. And that is to go to gdui.org or to call. And our harness sign is, I'm sorry, not our harness sign, our harness pouch is on sale for $15, which is a 25% savings. Uh, shipping and handling does still apply. So on to the really cool stuff that's happening today. We've got a couple of different things happening in this session. We've got um, panelists, Dr. Nicholas Giudici and his associate, and they're going to talk about the future of autonomous vehicles. And then we're going to have the winner of the plush guide drawings, pull some door prizes. And then we're going to have an announcement from uh, about a joint venture between um, guide Dogs for the Blind and the Seeing Eye. So thanks everyone for being here and may I please introduce Dr. Nicholas Giudici and his associate, Mr. Fink. Good afternoon. Thanks to GDUI for inviting us to talk about our research. Thanks to all of you for being here. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's too bad we're not in person. Obviously, people are saying that, but it's particularly sad for my new guide dog because I was telling him about all the fun of meeting people and playing with all the pups and Obviously, that doesn't happen as nearly as much with Zoom. So, sorry, buddy. Yeah, my name is uh, Nick Chidici. I'm a professor at the University of Maine. I'm uh, founded and, and now I'm uh, the chief research scientist at the Vimy Lab, which is a, a lab there. I'm also the chief research officer at UNAR Labs. And, and really, at a high level, all of our research, whether it's being done at the, at the lab or at the company or with a lot of the people that I'm working with, is dealing with some aspect of information access technology and human technology interaction, much of it looking at um, as it relates to people with visual impairments or providing visual information in multisensory ways. So today we're talking about a, a, a hot new research topic. It's, it's being looked at by lots of different people, but we're looking at it from the accessibility standpoint, and this is related to fully autonomous vehicles. And probably many of you have heard about these things. And there's a lot of hype and a lot of, <laughs> a lot out there. 
some of it being true, some of it not. And there's a lot of work to be done, certainly in the accessibility domain. And I just want to say we're talking kind of an informally in this in this talk. We're giving you just a, an overview of some of the things that we're doing. We're going to pose some questions back and forth just to let you know of what research issues are kind of things that you might want to think about. What are the policy things you might want to consider? And hopefully to, to get some of your input and to get you involved, because at the end of the day, none of this is going to work without um, getting end user input from the people that are actually going to be using these things. Often we have very different understandings and views uh, than the engineers. So I think that's really important. Um, I'm a professor. I tend to prattle on and I'm trying not to do that. And so I'm doing this talk today with my colleague, uh, Paul Fink, and he will be helping to keep me on track and keep us. He's much more uh, uh, focused than I am. So, Paul, do you want to you want to take it away? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Hey, everyone. Um, my name is Paul Fink. I'm a graduate research assistant in Nick's lab, the virtual environment and multimodal interaction lab at the University of Maine. And today, like Nick said, we're going to be talking about fully autonomous vehicles, um, some of the benefits of this technology for people who are blind and visually impaired, as well as some challenges, both on the technology side and some serious limitations in current state and federal policy. But before we get started, it's, it's important that we're all on the same page about exactly the kind of vehicles that we're talking about here. When we refer to fully autonomous vehicles, we're not talking about Teslas or other recent model vehicles you may have heard about on the roads with some self-driving features. By fully autonomous, we mean completely driverless vehicles, often referred to as level five autonomy. These cars, buses, and shuttles don't have steering wheels, gas pedals, or really any other form of control mechanism. So driving is not just optional. It's really not even possible in a lot of these vehicles. Now, there are a few reasons why this technology is so important and why we're excited to be talking about it today. First, fully autonomous vehicles are expected to be so much safer than our current means of transportation. Driving is one of the most dangerous things we do on a daily basis, and predictions say that once implemented, our driverless future will save over 30,000 lives per year in the United States by eliminating accidents owing to operator error. Another major impact that self-driving cars will have on our transportation system is affording new mobility options for people who cannot drive, including many people with disabilities, people who are blind, visually impaired, and a lot of older adults. Um, many here are likely excited about the independence that fully autonomous vehicles will bring, will be hopefully bringing about. Being able to independently drive when and where you want without the need for buses, trains, cabs, uh, paratransit, or to rely on friends and family, we hope is going to be truly life-changing. There are approximately 25 million Americans reporting a travel-limiting disability in the United States, and 600,000 older adults stop driving every year. There are also 26.9 million adults, roughly one-tenth of the country's population, over the age of 18, reporting some degree of visual impairment. This is only going to increase because uh, over 10,000 people turn 65 each day in the United States, and age continues to be a significant contributing factor for experiencing visual impairment. So the potential impact here for independence and mobility is it's truly massive. 
Now, it's also worth briefly mentioning that this work isn't just focused on the future. This isn't some sort of science fiction uh, pipe dream. <laughs> you may be surprised to know that many of these cars are already on the roads today. The shuttle services active in New York, Detroit, the University of Michigan, Las Vegas, Orlando, and uh, many other cities all over the world. Public shuttle services are one area that we're really excited about for self-driving cars, but the area that is receiving even more attention are rideshare services, similar to Uber and Lyft. While there may be some private ownership in the future of autonomous vehicles, the current trend from really all the automakers is to deploy these vehicles as ride-shared services with a sort of subscription model. Now, this might be disappointing to some, but... Really, whether we like it or not, it's the reality. So that's the context we want you to have in mind throughout the rest of this talk. When we say self-driving or fully autonomous cars, imagine being able to call or summon a car without a driver to come and pick you up and take you where you want to go. So Nick, with this sort of Uber-like rideshare model in mind, can you talk a little bit about the technology challenges? Yeah, uh, so... You know, partly I think it's it's worth realizing that it, it's the uh, the process of driving doesn't start and end when you're actually in the vehicle. I think that's what you know a lot of people think you know, people are talking about this. Like, oh, how do we make AVs accessible? That's obviously important, but a big part of what we're looking at is saying, and this is a technology and a, just a practical challenge. How do we consider the whole travel trip, right? So, you, if it's going to be ride shared, which it seems like it is going to be. Uh, we need to figure out how to how to summon the car, how to how to get to the pickup destination, how to safely enter the vehicle, uh, how to interact and operate with the vehicle. This is where you know most people are are, are focusing. And then finally, how to how to uh, you know effectively get out of the vehicle, know where you are, and and then go to where you want to go. Um, a lot of these things are just you know so, so some of these things are basic mobility issues, but a lot of them aren't. So a key challenge here with the current technology is. Uh, how to get people to the car when there's no longer a human driver. So you know, that's going to be the case with these autonomous vehicles. You're not going to have anyone at the wheel. So, you know, in a typical uh, rideshare scenario, I think probably this is something that, that I do. And I think probably most people here, you know, interacting with the human driver is enormous, enormously useful. So I, um, you know, I do this in different ways. Probably some of you have, have different techniques, but I but I'll often text or try to communicate with the driver to let them know, hey, I'm not going to see you, so let me know when you're here, or let me know what ride is mine. This really is useful for not only knowing the car has arrived, but knowing how to how to get to it to get to that kind of last meter problem. You can think of it, maybe last five meters, but what have you. So, you know, we've interviewed uh, as we started this research a bunch of of, of blind and visually impaired travelers, uh, just starting in Maine, and this seems to be a fairly consistent issue across the board. People are, uh, you know, talk a lot about how the driver plays a key role in knowing that their car is there, telling them uh, where to go, letting them know about certain obstructions, which is often helpful for communicating with your dog, um, and, and various other information that's no longer going to be there. So the question that really started a lot of this initial part of our work is, well, what are we going to do when there's no longer a driver? And so, one potential solution, technological solution uh, to this problem that, that we're exploring in the lab is looking at using smartphone apps that use auditory information. So audio, speech, different so tones, vibration, or, or what's called haptics or touch. And then also using new computer vision techniques um, 
that that are going to try to provide this type of information, try to assist people with you know safely and accurately finding the car, getting to the car, and the like. So, you know, one thing that I want to mention, is, and especially to this group, but, but but I think it's important for everyone to realize is that this solution that we're doing is intentionally and and, and, and you know by by no means is just trying to replace existing travel aids, mobility aids, or, you know, canes and dogs. I think that that's a problem with a lot of technology that people come out and they say, oh, we have some device that's going to help you do all this stuff. And like, well, my dog or my cane does that fine. But what we're really interested in is saying, well, how can we complement that, the information that might be challenging for the dog? So, for instance, when, as I said, when, when, when you're walking to the car, uh, my dog doesn't tell me what is in front of me. So if we can use the computer vision to actually name the objects, there's a hydrant in front of you. Uh, or he's you know, obviously great at telling me about uh, ground and terrain level things, but things at head level. How many people have whacked into something that their cane or their dog went under that's you know, at face level? So using these computer vision techniques as you're walking toward your car, if it parks because there's no human there in front of a bunch of branches that are at head height, this device or, or what we're developing would help you with determining that overhangs, guide wires. So if you've seen these kind of angled wires that come off telephone poles, they're a nightmare. These types of things. Because again, you're not going to have a human to necessarily tell you what's there, but also the car won't necessarily think about these things when you, when we're talking about the, the AI that's developing, you know, that's being developed when it parks. So the app that we're designing is, is you know, going to help the, with, with these types of, of tasks. And it's meant to uh, complement the, the the dog, and what it's going to do is it's going to use the camera of your phone, and then we're going to use computer vision and embedded AI or, or artificial intelligence um, to detect and label these objects that are in your path. And this sounds, in a way, kind of at a high level, very simple, but but there's a lot of complexity that goes into trying to figure out how to make this work effectively, how to label things that are in the paths, you know, from, from a AI. Uh, uh, you know, lots of things look very similar or you train it on one thing and it has to learn to do this effectively for lots of different things. And so that's an important part of where we're going here from a technological standpoint. Once we've avoided the obstacles and we've gotten to the car, the next challenge obviously is um, solve, you know, how do we, well, first, how do we get to the actual door handle. So this is something that I particularly find frustrating. So I know I get to the car, I know where it is, but I might be a little bit off. And so I'm sitting there with my hand kind of feeling along the car. It just doesn't feel very natural and it doesn't make me, it doesn't seem dignified. So we want to have a way that we're going to be, we're, it's going to, we're going to use the same type of computer vision that's going to isolate where the handle is and your, your phone will vibrate or give you different tones to kind of guide you very subtly in so you know exactly where your hand is reaching to get into the car. Okay, so now we've summoned the car, we found out that it's here, we've gotten to it safely, we've gotten into it. Now we need to start thinking about the, the middle part of the travel of how to actually interact and operate with the car and think about some of the accessibility challenges there. And I think, Paul, do you want to talk a little about uh, what we're thinking about in these areas? Yeah, happy to. So one thing we're really pushing for in our lab and just our research as a whole is for more attention and research and resources to be paid towards what passengers will actually need to interact successfully with autonomous vehicles. 
While there has been an enormous amount of investment in the sensor development and algorithms that will allow these vehicles to stay on the road and minimize risk, and don't get me wrong, that stuff's really important too, um, there, there's just been significantly less attention paid towards the human side of the equation. How will people interact with these vehicles? And um, we would argue more importantly, how will people who currently don't drive or can't drive, like those with visual impairments or other disabilities, interact with these vehicles? Unfortunately, these questions really haven't been fully answered yet. So this is part of our research as well. The current trajectory of development has autonomous vehicles relying exclusively on flat featureless touchscreens that in just about all cases lack um, some sort of vibration support. Nick, I I think I remember you mentioning that when you first got to ride in a Tesla, since it didn't have buttons or dials on the dash, you weren't even able to turn the radio on, let alone get some information about the ride or where it might be taking you. Okay, can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, it's true, actually. I was so excited. I went out with a friend in the Tesla and it was fun. But I wanted to turn the radio down. I started touching the touchscreen. There's no buttons. There's no way to do anything. I couldn't. I couldn't get. I couldn't make the car do anything. No, no, beyond, it wasn't just turning the radio. I mean, it was just doing anything in the car. I just felt like I was just randomly touching the touchscreen and not knowing what was going to happen. That was very frustrating because it was. You know, this was something that was designed to be intuitive. They, to the engineers think could it be useful, and it was not at all useful. Yeah, and it's, that's the trajectory really, of all these. You know, all the future of all these cars—they're all building them around these similar interfaces. Right. It's really exam- an example of um, engineers designing for you know typically the 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 average user and not thinking about everyone who's trying to benefit from this technology. And it, it's a huge problem, particularly given that people already don't trust self-driving technology. We argue that if we want to ensure that autonomous vehicles are trustworthy, a good place to start is. Being able to is making sure that people can actually interact with them in an accessible manner. Um, we're working on this using a similar a similar approach to what Nick was talking about with finding and getting to the right car. An advantage of using a mobile device like a smartphone is that many of us already have these devices and know how to use them to a pretty good extent. Um, it also allows us to use the native accessibility features already built into devices like iPhones with voice detection, voiceover, magnification, and other text accessibility supports that you all might be familiar with. We're really excited about our work on new non-visual ways to convey the vehicle's route and progress using a smartphone. Our lab, and Nick especially, has done a ton of work with accessibility on these devices. Nick, can you talk a little bit about your what, what, what we call vibrotactile work on touchscreens? Yeah, so just, just briefly, and, and you know, it's always bothered me a little bit that people, these things are called touchscreens because they're really generally flat, featureless displays with really nothing that you actually touch. And, and for a blind person, you know, they really, they, they really don't provide any useful information unless there's some sort of accessibility built in. One obvious solution that's been done really well, as Paul mentioned, are uh, smartphones and particularly screen readers like VoiceOver that have been used on in Apple devices to access these screens. However, as you know, it's not just the Tesla example. The AD, AV developers, autonomous vehicle developers, are not kind of following this model. They're currently adopting these touchscreens with no accessibility built in, so that's problematic. Um, 
there's also a huge opportunity here, as, as Paul hinted at, to use more than just audio descriptions and in, in, in screen reading, but you can use vibration in these devices uh, to co convey access to information that isn't possible with a traditional screen reader. So, for instance, graphical information. There's lots of icons, there's lots of maps, there's lots of things that are graphical that don't have text on them. And that currently doesn't work uh, even with a screen reader on a touch screen or, or really any screen reader. And so this kind of drove this research when we realized this was a problem. And then we realized, well, the, the smartphones in particular have these vibration motors in them that provide uh, a way of uh, a new mode of interaction. And so uh, we can use these vibration motors to allow access to graphical information and graphical content that otherwise wouldn't be able to be accessed. And so it works by, uh, imagine that you're running your finger around the screen, and as you touch anything on the screen that's a visual element, the device or the screen vibrates. And this feels, when, when you're touching it with your finger, it feels like there's something under your finger. So you can feel points, and you can feel lines, and you can, you can trace uh, objects and trace you know, maps and roads. I'm, I'm not going to go into this a lot here. I could talk about this for a long time because I'm really excited. This is something that is not, you don't need any extra hardware it's built, you know, you can use current devices and it provides access to all types of information that you currently can't access. And so our research, we've done a lot of research in the lab, as Paul has mentioned, to, to develop new design guidelines and best practices for, for people to use this stuff. So we've, we've looked at using touchscreen accessibility for accessing graphics um, in a number of different ways. So we've looked at this with navigational maps so when you're learning about a map of a new place we're looking at real-time rendering of, of information that could be used on displays that changes as you move so this could be really important for use in autonomous vehicles both of these concepts and we think that if this type of technology could be and this is mainstream technology could be embedded into future uh, autonomous vehicle design that we would really change the landscape that would open the door to access by lots of different people it would work fine also for sighted people. So that's the beauty of inclusive or universal design. And so, you know, just the, the initial results that we've, that we've used, that we've done looking at this technology, especially related to maps, we're really excited about because we found that using the touchscreen, uh, accessing these dynamic maps on touchscreens is just as act, is accurate and just people are just as able to learn environments that they are from traditional embossed paper map. So this really shows the efficacy of this technology and it shows that it can work. And we're really excited about how to push it forward as, as the, this technology develops. So yeah, our next step is to, to, to kind of take these guidelines, to take these different types of applications and figure out ways to render uh, information like intersections. So if you're driving in a car, how you know what intersection you're coming up to, how you know where you are on the map, how you interact with all the icons and different aspects of the car to control the mechanism and all these things that we're going to need to do when we're in the car trying to control its its navigation. It's important to mention though, and, and Nick, you, you might agree here that although there is a lot of this exciting research going on in, in the autonomous vehicle space, it's really not going to have much of an impact if state and federal policy doesn't catch up. Like the federal government hasn't really touched autonomous vehicles yet in a substantive way. They've issued a lot of guidance for states and manufacturers, but haven't really stepped up to create any real rules around these accessible interactions or accessible design. Um, 
through some of the research I've done, this is this has led to states states passing their own autonomous vehicle laws, many of which functionally discriminate against people with disabilities. For example, a lot of states require that all passengers in an autonomous vehicle, regardless of how much automation it is able to uh, automate, really, requires that the passengers have a driver's license. This is a real problem because it effectively precludes the people who are most ready to benefit from self-driving cars, people who can't drive. Since many people with disabilities and older adults are excited for autonomous vehicles exactly because they can't get a driver's license, uh, it's important that we consider not, not only how to make autonomous transportation accessible, but but also legal. We recently proposed um, this idea of an autonomous vehicle operator's license that would be separate from a driver's license and would allow people who can't drive the ability to ride in an autonomous vehicle legally. So, for example, if you're blind, you can't pass a driver's test, you could still get an autonomous vehicle operator's license. Uh, We we think this would make a really big difference addressing some of those state laws, which are essentially discriminatory. Um, so that, that's, I, I feel like we've, we've given a pretty good high-level overview of some of the challenges of the technology and introduced this, this policy problem. Um, I think what maybe we should do now is move into some more depth in the specific areas. Uh, at this point, we would, we would welcome the audience to participate. Um, you, can, you can ask questions by raising your hand, and if, if the moderator can um, um, unmute the people who raise their hands, um, that would be great. It would be particularly helpful at this point if those were just clarifying questions about what we're talking about. And then at the end, we'll take um, more in-depth questions. You can also email us at our uh, research group's email address, which is autonomousvrgcontact at gmail.com. And the um, VRG stands for Vehicle Research Group. So it's autonomous VRG contact at gmail.com. So Nick, just, just to start off these questions between you and me, we've, we've talked a bit, you, you started off by talking about the complete trip of driving. Can you talk more about how this is an end-to-end process and what challenges you project and maybe bring the guide dog in here because um, that's who we're talking to. <laughs> Well, at least they're users. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit. The trip is not just in the vehicle. So we have to, we have to, you know, the the idea of summoning and finding the vehicle is is a big part of what we're doing with with what we're calling the AVA app, Autonomous Vehicle Assistant. And so this is a project that we're working on that's looking at that side of things. And you know, in in that process, the the role of a dog is really important obviously just for the normal navigation of getting around but as i mentioned there's a lot of challenges that are going to happen because there's no driver that are going to be challenging for a dog because you don't know where the car is going to stop and you don't know how to give you know i like to give my dog kind of certain instructions if i know that it's on the other side of a road that we're going to have to cross or if i know there's going to be some random you know it's going to be in front of trash cans it helps me to interpret you know, what the dog is doing and how I can best communicate with him. So being able to provide information through the computer vision to, to, to help clarify that will be really important. And I think, you know, there's another challenge also that in, in some ways makes it easier. So I don't know how many people here have had experiences that I've had where I've called an Uber and they get there and they see me with my dog and they drive away. It's it's hugely, besides it's being discriminatory and, and what have you, it's a, it's a pain in the butt. Like it's, 
and it's caused a lot of problems. And so I think that, you know, I think one good thing is having an autonomous and an AI driver is that we hopefully won't have that type of bias of people that won't allow dogs or don't accept dogs and, and, and you know, whether it's legal or not, don't uh, stop. So I think that's, that's an important aspect. Uh, getting in the car and, 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 you know, the challenges of operating, we talked a little bit about that, of just how to figure out, you know, if it's rideshare, when you open the car, one of the things that people mentioned that I think is important is, you know, you want to know who's in there. So if it's not just you in a rideshare AV, then it might be, a, you know, some sort of, a lot of them are like these vans, small little shuttle things. When, when it shows up, you want to know where people are sitting. So you know where to put your stuff and don't throw your suitcase or your backpack on someone's lap, which I've certainly done. Um, you know, just some of these logistics of, of navigation that people with vision often don't think about, but are, but are potentially really important for uh, uh, to make an app that's seamless and effective and just allows you to really move around and, and, and navigate in a way that's, you know, efficient and natural. The obvious aspects of communicating with the vehicle, we've talked about that with the touchscreen, but, you know, knowing where, how to provide information to it. So using good speech input and output, how to tell it where to go, how to know if it's if it's going the wrong place. There's a lot of aspects that you can imagine would be challenging. And I think one of the things that we really want to know is what are the things that most people are most, you know, are concerned about? Because, again, as designers, we can think about these things, but what's really important is to hear from others about what they want and what they're worried about. And then when you get there, how often do you ask someone, okay, you know, I, I, we're at the stop, where's the door from here? Or can you describe, you know, something about the environment that you're getting out into? But that's not going to be possible using an AI driver. So how can our system help with that using GPS and, again, computer vision to give you that information? So I think the more that we can provide this information and the more that we're then able to convey that to you know, to use our, that knowledge to guide what we do and also guide how we communicate with our dog is going to make a big difference. And I think that um, the more that we can, can kind of do practice and get, get input, but also do experiments and, and, you know, mock simulations with people that have dogs will help to figure out some of the challenges that maybe we didn't even think about yet. But that's, my dog's certainly going to be, uh, <laughs> he's going to be a champ at dealing with AVs by the time we're done with this work. <laughs> I'll be excited to see that. So, Nick, do you have any questions for me? Other, otherwise, um, I'm seeing that we've got 11 hands raised. So I'd like to get through some questions, if we could, from the audience. Yeah, just tell me one thing. You know, we hear about these things all the time. And everyone, and I've heard that AVs and some AVs are already on the road. And then some people say, oh, this isn't going to happen for 40 years. When are we going to see these things, do you think, Paul? You've looked into the policy on this more than almost anybody. Yeah, so that's that's really the million dollar, or I guess I should say billion dollar, hundred billion dollar question at this point. Um, there's just so much investment going going into this space, and you know we first started hearing about predictions that they were going to be on the roads next year in probably 2017, and then in 2018 people were saying, oh, they'll be here in 2019, and you know now they're saying 2022. But the the encouraging thing is that. Um, more and more, we're seeing more services uh, opening up testing areas. Like just just today, actually, I, I read an article that um, Intel's company startup called Mobileye just got approval to start um, testing in New York City. So, so it's one thing to be able to test these video, these vehicles on private roads or um, on really straight highways, like in the in the Southwest. Uh, it's another thing to to be testing them on really urban streets with a lot of unpredictable variables. So I think as, um, 
I think we're, we're getting there. Uh, apparently Tesla is, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of, uh, a lot of testing with just the people who own Teslas and gathering a lot of data. Um, and then they're saying that with, if you pay some sort of, sort of exorbitant subscription fee that you'll be able to um, experience these fully self-driving features sooner than other people. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think all the companies, and of course there's a profit motive for them to say, um, we'll be able to do this next year. Um, and I think people who live in cities and people who live in um, places that aren't as climately diverse as, for example, Maine, <laughs> are going to be able to benefit from them probably sooner than those of us who live in um, some conditions sometimes when you, you can't even really see the road. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's going to be it, 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 it'll take a while, I would say. The earlier we can get people to talk about accessibility and how this will really be beneficial to everybody, I think the better. So yeah, yeah. let's take some other questions are there, uh, if we can get, get some Yes, here. we have several raised hands. Our first person is Sean. Sean, you may unmute. Two concerns. One is when you're talking about the dealing with a human, one of the problems I have is telling people where my apartment, where my townhouse is in the complex, hoping that they understand what I'm talking about. Um, second thing is, I know this is a guide dog users group, and I understand that, but I would like to make sure that those of us who are cane users and who don't have, uh, I have a directional hearing with sound problems, so I can't safely cross streets so i know we have a guide dog group here and i know a lot of people are thinking about that but not everybody chooses to use a guide dog or is able to i can't travel i can't travel enough to get one even if i wanted one um so i just want that to be considered in the research process thank you yeah sean thank you so i'll take uh some of this at least absolutely you can't i mean this is the problem that engineer i I'm an experimental psychologist by training. I work with engineers now, and I tell them mostly if you're if, if, if you're as the engineer thinking that this is the right way to do something, let's do the opposite. And, and I'm kind of joking for engineers in the audience, but yeah, you can't just look at one group of people and think it's going to work. And that's that that's why we're saying that this is a tool that augments information that any mobility aid would use. If you are a traveler that can travel independently, this will benefit you. It's not going to be something that's tied to one type of whether you use a cane or a dog, I mean, a lot of the challenges are, are similar. Again, head level things and, and, and not identifying objects. Um, but the the directionality, I think, is also an important thing. So we're excited about spatialized audio, which is directional and, and soundscape, and that will work for a lot of different people because it provides a lot of cues that just language doesn't. It wouldn't work for you, and I think it's important to to, to hear from people like you to, to keep that in mind. But what would work is still being able to use the vibration to provide that directional information. And I think that would be something that I would be interested in you know, ultimately once we start trying stuff, someone like you giving input on. And that's why the more people we get involved, the better. So thanks. And just to address the, the first part of your question about GPS and your townhouse and your complex, um, one thing that we're excited about in the app that we're developing is and the concern you raise is really consistent across the board. When we were doing initial user research for, for this project that we're working on, that was one thing that a lot of people said was um, it's hard, like you'll order uh, an Uber or whatever to, to, to pick you up at work and, and they arrive on the wrong side of the building 
or in an unexpected place. And, and so one thing that we're trying to build into this app is that each, each user would have a profile and on your profile, you would be able to register um, specific GPS locations, which would be like your pickup point or your drop-off point at work. So that sort of circumvents that um, ambiguity that sort of surrounds GPS currently. Um, and it's, you know, hopefully GPS gets better, but right now that would be just a good workaround that we're hoping to implement. All right, our next person is Andy Smith. Andy, you may unmute. Yeah, so I guess my questions are typically, you know, when you have an Uber or a Lyft or whatever, you know, you could, you communicate with your driver in order to kind of find them. At least, you know, that, that's how I do it. I call them up and I kind of find them. I have a white cane and we kind of communicate. How is this going to work? You know, because you mentioned before that this is going to be like a subscription thing. You know, so how, I guess how would this work with like a self-driving vehicle like you know, like how you communicate with the vehicle in order to like find it. I guess that's kind of what I'm. I, I guess my biggest concern is finding the vehicle. Like if you're in a parking lot, there's a zillion vehicles. Like how are you going to find yours? You know what I mean? Like, oh, you want to take that? Yeah, sure. So uh, this app that we're developing, and sorry that we keep referring to the this app that we're developing, but that's uh, that's sort of where we're at at, at the moment in, in our research. Um, this is this is something that. Is is a huge is a huge challenge, and it's one of the things that we really started with when when we started working on what we're calling the Ava app. And um, how it works is essentially it uses the phone's camera uh, through this process called computer vision um, to to see the surrounding area. And then there's going to be an onboard a separate computer essentially in the vehicle, which will communicate with your phone. So your phone is going to know generally whereabouts the right car. Um, for you to take a ride in is, is, and through, through the computer vision, it's going to feed, um, feed that information into what we're calling natural language, which then, um, if you're using the phone, you'll be able to, you'll be able to hear navigational audio descriptions of where the phone is, uh, where, where the car is. I mean, um, Nick, I don't know if you want to get into more specifics than that. But yeah, just a couple of the quick things that we're yeah. also doing. So because the phone talks with the embedded computer, the, the, the you know, embedded car computer, you can, we can easily do things like honk the horn, blink the lights if you have some vision, or, or, or have it even call out a, a, a code that you might put in or a name that you want it, that you put in your profile. So you'll actually hear that car calling to you if that's one way that you want to do it. So there's different ways to try to, to, try to do this, but this is a challenge. This is a challenge now. If you come into the concert and there's five for you know twenty five Ubers waiting outside, it's going to be even worse when you can't talk to the person, as you mentioned. So these we're trying to come up with a bunch of different ways to, to solve that. Okay, our next participant is Kevin. Kevin, you may unmute. Thank you. Great panel. Great presentation. I'm curious um, with the Ava app, or in addition to like camera, computer vision. Not sure if you guys have ex- tried out things like AirTags with like a U1 chip that's both like pretty precisely, like if it were on like a door handle, you would be able to put your hand and be guided directly towards that. Um, that was kind of one question just around like leveraging kind of some of the existing technology like U1 with the precision finding or like some a fair amount of cars have like CarPlay where you can do a fair amount of like navigation and music and as long as your phone's connected. Um, and then the other one was more around kind of identifying like where you are and kind of what intersections you're approaching. Not sure if you've had experience with like back in the day, there was uh, the Sendero GPS that um, 
did like a fantastic job of really being descriptive about points of interest you're passing, intersections you're approaching, and be able to kind of query where you are. Wondering if there's been any thoughts to try not to reinvent the wheel, but just trying to leverage existing things or patterns that have worked in the past. Yeah, so, so sorry. Oh, just two it. quick things there. Uh, for the technology, we're still looking at different aspects of, of that local, final localization technology, because you're right, there's a lot out there. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. One of our kind of guiding mantras is to try to not use a lot of extra chips or, or, or devices if we don't need to that would rely on having to install them into the just to increase infrastructure footprint. So if we can tap into what is on a phone and what is already in a car, but that gives us a lot of sensors, but we're still kind of not, we're to the point where we're doing a lot of the programming and we're not doing a lot of the testing of the actual tech. So there's a lot of stuff that that may change. I totally agree on the navigation. So besides the fact of us being able to add, you know, we wanted people to add landmarks and do stuff that would be maybe not on a traditional nav system. We're also down the road talking with a number of different people um, that nothing's solidified, so I don't want to give any names, but we would, we're interested in connecting with other current systems that would do larger scale navigation. If say the car is, you know, down the block or, or a few blocks away um, so we wouldn't be making a whole new navigation app. We'd be able to kind of work as a front end that would connect into other apps. Yeah, Nick, you, you hit on exactly what I was going to talk about with, with infrastructure. Sort of the beauty of what, what we're doing is it doesn't rely on extra devices and waypoints or whatever being placed all around cities or inside um, indoor places. Um, if, if we were willing... F- to have massive infrastructure investment, really, we could have had um, we could have had autonomous vehicles in the '60s with copper wire inlaid in the road. But um, we're at the point in this country where we where we need to find solutions without massive infrastructure. So that's that's what we're trying to do. All right, our next participant is Lino. Lino, you may unmute. Yes, Lino. By the way, um, you know I don't mean to be a negative Nancy here. Let me preface this by saying that. But first of all, I think you should, you, both of you should be ashamed of yourselves for pushing this because I, I doesn't matter if you have a guide dog, doesn't matter if you're blind or visually impaired or in a wheelchair or sighted. I think this is totally downright dangerous. You're, di- you're dealing with people's lives here, folks. You, I don't care what technologies are built in these 100% autonomous cars. How is it going to handle me saying driving on the two interstates in Charlotte? Oh, I need to switch lanes. How's it going to know that? What if I end up hitting somebody, you know? Uh, mountainous terrains. We have the most porous roads in a lot of areas. Arkansas is a good example. How's it going to handle traveling curves on a mountain without going down 10,000 feet to, to your plummet to your death? Um, you know, I jokingly tell people if I'm going to ride an autonomous vehicle, it's going to be like a uh, kitten night rider for the night industries 2000, where I can talk to kittens to let him drive me. But you know, I don't what, need to do, do you ever do you fly? I'm sorry, do you fly. Yes, but there is, sir, there's human interaction with the pilot. They're the ones Absolutely. that control. Absolutely, but there need not be. I mean, the, the, the things that you're talking about are absolutely dangerous, but autonomy is happening, whether you like it or not. So the question is, how do we make it safer? Now, manually driven cars are what are actually really dangerous. So I think the, the, the challenge is a real one. The connection of autonomous vehicles to legacy vehicles is going to be particularly dangerous because then you're going to have algorithms driving some things and human nature driving others. And that's always challenging, but I, I would, you know, it's, it's fine to, you know, you may disagree, but I think ultimately the premise that you're starting with is, is an incorrect one. 
I think that this will be safer. All right, our next participant is Alan. Alan, you may unmute. First of all, I couldn't disagree more with the first caller. I'm 65, I'm congenitally blind, and I expect to have one of these within the next three years. And I will, I'm more than happy to try it, and I don't give a darn how dangerous it is. We need this technology, and you're doing the right thing. Jeff Bezos, your 100 million, we need it for this. <laughs> okay, I have three ideas, and they're all way out there, so you can pick up on whichever one you want. First of all, um, I hope this will be universal, as in, if I get in a Chevy one minute and a, you know, Toyota the next, we need to make sure that the design for the blind user is not going to change, because I think that would, it, it, I, I could go into a lot of depth on that, but you can pick up on that. Secondly, um, what about a robot guide dog? I think there would be a link between a universally accessible autonomous vehicle and a robot guide dog. Have you, has your research touched on that at all? And thirdly, I worked at Telesensory in the 90s, and we tried to use an Opticon with the Apple as a mouse. Now, there's a lot to that, a lot of reasons that that wasn't such a great idea. But I think that speech is too vague. It's one, I don't know the right terminology to use for it, but it's one level removed from something more direct like tactile. So have you thought of a tactile interface like an Opticon? Yeah, let me speak. I know we're running out of time. Those are great questions. The universal connection between vehicles is critical, and that is going to be a problem that needs to be dealt with, and that will cause things to be dangerous if that doesn't happen. Uh, I'm going to leave the robot guide dog for now because that will start all types of discussion that uh, we don't have time for. the, I totally agree with you. We get what I call the over there problem. How many people have been given directions and someone says, go over there? That means nothing. Language is interpretive. It doesn't actually have direct perceptual value of, of space where something with touch does. So the touch screen work that we're doing is essentially doing using a different interface. It sounds like maybe you were, you were playing with the Opticon in an early pioneering way, which it sounds really cool. Not driven by a camera. Uh, remote camera, but being driven either, either by the digital map or the phone's camera. But I absolutely oh, believe driven in, by in the values. mouse, Dr- driven by the computer's map. No, 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 I'm saying what we're doing, what we're doing now with with thinking of this of using vibration from the touchscreen. But but the the value of touch versus just using auditory is critical. This is Andrea, but I just wanted to jump in. Uh, this is so fascinating, and I wish that. Again, I've done a double session. I have to learn. Um, I want to um, take maybe one, we have time for maybe one more question, but could I want to make sure that you give your email again, because all of the people who haven't had a chance to ask their questions can pose those on the email and, and also give you their names if they want to be become involved in some fashion in this process. Yeah, absolutely. So our contact email for our autonomous vehicle research group is autonomousvrgcontact at gmail.com. Yeah, All right. we, we look forward to hearing from people, getting input, positive, negative. You know, this all can be useful. So please uh, okay. contact us. Our next Hello? person is Linda, and um, we do have until 
345 with this session. No, we, uh, I'm oh. sorry. Let me please jump in. We don't, we do have until 345, but we've got two, we've got another panel coming on. My <laughs> so apologies. I, that's okay. There, there, that was a new, that's a new and breaking news type of event. All right, Linda, go ahead. Okay. I have a couple questions. Um, I'm a DeafBlind Cane user. I, I do love the presentation and thank you for that. But I have questions about, okay, you mentioned the driver's license thing. So if they get over that hurdle and people get a special operator's license, they, I believe that they should have some kind of guarantee that it would be accessible to whatever disability you have in order to have this license. And if, if for some reason that's not possible, uh, is there still going to be like ride share and things like Lyft and Uber for those that wouldn't qualify for an operating license? And the last question is about if you're waiting just inside the door of someplace because it's raining or it's 90 degrees out, you know, with the car, you know, how, how would you find the car or how would they find you, et cetera? Thank you. So on the first question, um, yeah, I, I absolutely agree that if there's an autonomous vehicle operator's license, and we're pushing for that pretty hard right now, but if if that does come about, I absolutely agree that that should um, be available to to all people with sensory impairments, cognitive impairments, or or otherwise. Um, for your for your second point about um, difficult weather conditions, you know, I think what, what we haven't thought that much about about that. What pickup situations will be like. Um, I have read some things about, I have read a lot of proposals in some of the groups that we've worked with about um, some small level infrastructure changes, especially in city centers where there'll be, you know, instead of a bus stop, an autonomous vehicle pickup location, which, you know, it it, it only makes sense that those would have some sort of um, rain cover or protection. So, so people can have a designated place where they know how to get to and um, be protected from the elements to some extent, but that's basically the best I can, I can do at this point. I want to jump in again. This is Andrea and I unfortunately have to switch to a different um, topic. And um, I felt this way, this whole convention that every time I've scheduled something, I wish that I took the opportunity as the coordinator to make them double sessions. So to all of you who are out there and to all of my panelists, current, past, and the ones for tomorrow, I'll just apologize for not having had the foresight to do that. Um, this was such a fascinating to- topic, and I have so many questions um, that obviously I'll have to send to that email. <laughs> so um, thank you both for being here. It's so interesting and so important and wonderful that we've got a great team in the forefront thinking about these things and, and realizing some of the things that are ridiculous and obvious and some of the things that are absolutely not obvious and looking to the stakeholders in the future of this technology to find answers. The next thing that I need to move to is an exciting thing for me, which is to give out some door prizes and to announce the winners of Pause and Resume, where both of our plush guides and harness. And then I'm going to turn the um, stage, so to speak, over to two um, representatives from two different guys, guide dog schools who are going to share with us a really exciting new video that's happened. So we've got a lot going on this session. Um, 
not only did I not block enough time for even one session, I decided to put all the things into one session because that's what I did. So I am with a computer and not my Braille display. So I apologize. There will be some little lags in time between my switching back and forth from documents. But the first thing I'm going to do is, is give out three door prizes um, or I think maybe actually four door prizes. And um, three of them are the scrubby waterless bath mitt that we have. And actually there are five in a package. And if you dry them, you can actually reuse them the way some people might do with say Ziploc bags or something like that. This is even more functional because you can, um, hang them up to dry and they can be reused and uh, bear with me for one moment and I'll get you the names of those winners. So two of our winners, uh, both of the scrubby waterless bath are actually one of our panelists. I swear this was completely randomized by the computer. Uh, uh, Nicholas Giudici and um, another one of the winners is Wendelin. Um, so that's really exciting. Another one of the winners for our door prize today of the, um, reusable waterless or the the waterless um, bath mitt is Margot Downey. And all of you will receive these in the mail. You don't need to worry. We've got all of your contact information. I am, it will go a lot more smoothly than this announcement is going, actually. The next thing that I want to do is to announce the winner of the drawing um, of Pause, the Golden Retriever plush guide in harness and resume the Black Labrador retriever plush guide dog and harness um we sold 717 tickets for resume and 453 tickets for um pause we didn't quite reach our the goal that mr a my guide dog put us up to but we we far far exceeded the gdui planning committee's budgeted amount so we are so awesome in that regard and um, the winner of Pause P A W Z is Cynthia Hawkins, and the winner of Resume is George. Uh, I'm not pronouncing name, but I apologize, George um, Ashito. Maybe I'm very bad at that. But rest assured, these dogs are. Um, ready to go. They will be coming from where they've been spending their time in training, as I like to say, and they're about to have their dog day. They will arrive at your house. Thank you everybody for supporting. This is one of our really significant fundraisers and it's made a huge impact on the work that we do to have people purchase these tickets. And uh, it's a straight up um, 100% donation to us because the, the, the plush guides and harness are donated completely as well as the, the shipping. So thank you for that. And um, I have one more door prize, and then I'm going to turn this over to the next speakers. So bear with me for one moment. I'll be right back. So the winner of the signed book by Christy Bain, Forward Together, is Laura Leggett. And now I'm going to turn this over to uh, two speakers who are here representing two different guide dog schools, the Seeing Eye and Guide Dogs for the Blind. Um, we have Chelsea White from the Seeing Eye. And um, excuse me, I'm sorry, I did it wrong. I've been practicing all afternoon and I still did it wrong. Um, is here from Guide Dogs for the Blind. And you have a video to introduce and show. And I'm very much hoping that the video 
um, we'll be able to show it. But that's so far above my pay grade and understanding that I can't make that promise. But I was told it would work. Are both of you in the house? Yep, I'm oh, yeah. here. Yes, thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm not sure how we want to do this. I think I'll just turn it over to the two of you and you guys can decide, um, I guess, on the fly who is going to um, talk first or introduce this. But this session does end at 445, at 3.45. We have to end on time because of the CEUs. But until that, from now until then, you guys have the stage. Rabia, do you, Fred, do you want to go ahead and sort of introduce this and then we can show it and sure. answer some questions? Yep. Thanks, Chelsea. Uh, thanks, Andrea. Hello, everybody. Good to hear from you, Nick. It's been a while since we spoke. Um, so I am um, representing Guide Dogs for the Blind, um, and we are here today to present a video that many of you may have heard about or have seen. And it's basically a video aimed at uh, the air travel industry. Uh, it's a training video to them uh, for how to interact with guide dog teams in airports and on the planes. Uh, this project started last summer. I happened to be at a DOT meeting uh, when I just felt that DOT thinks that, or thought, that everybody is ready to deal with guide dog teams in the age of corona. And that wasn't our experience from what we were hearing from our graduates. So I thought this would be a good project to do, and we could have done it alone, but to go back to what Nick was talking about and the infrastructure, I felt, and we do feel that way at GDB right now, is that collaboration is really necessary for better results. So I reached out to CNI and uh, invited them to join us in this project. We worked jointly on this. Uh, CNI uh, worked with um, uh, their airline in New Jersey on the East Coast. We work with ours here on the West Coast. Um, basically, it was United Airlines on the East Coast and Alaska Airlines on the West Coast and the airports and the TSAs involved with them as well. It wasn't easy. It was a, a collaboration that's not normal in our field and or the airline industry. But the results were fantastic. We're all happy with it. The video is already um, in distribution. Um, we're hoping that people in the airline or the air travel industry are benefiting from this and ultimately making it easier for us to travel with our service animals, um, given the corona restrictions and social distancing and all that kind of stuff. We urge all of you to tap into that video. It's available for free for anybody. You can download it from either the CNI or Guide Dogs for the Blind websites, and uh, please feel free to distribute it. We want to put it in front of those people who count the most. This is aimed at the staff of the airlines and TSA, not aimed at us as travelers at this time. And with that said, I'm going to... Chelsea, anything you want to add before we show the video? Uh, no, I don't think so. You. You got it covered pretty well. I will say that um, Melissa Allman was was sort of the go-to person for this. Um, she was instrumental, as was Rabia, in you know doing the video. So I'm just sort of filling in for Melissa. She's on vacation, so <laughs> doing a good job. Okay, Andrea, you want to uh, press that play button? See if it works. Um, the problem is I don't have a play button. Does somebody have a play button? 
can you um, share the audio or share the video? Share the, yeah, video. Are you able to uh, either the panel or I guess Andrew, like, or is someone able to screen share and well, then play? Unfortunately, we, we thought that you had that video um, <laughs> yourself. Yeah, so we, I'm, not, I'm very I'm sorry. Not, I was, I had sent the link for the video and um, I, my understanding was that everything was said. That I, I apologize for not either understanding that correctly or having that communicated correctly. Um, well, why don't we do this then? I mean, the video is self-explanatory. It's uh, short. Uh, it's about seven minutes. It's uh, uh, again, it takes people. What we what we did is we had clients. Um, on both coasts who uh, went to the airports and the filming started right at the gate, at the front door, so to speak, of the airport and went through the whole process of checking in, you know, into the, the lobby, checking in at the counter, uh, going through, um, walking through the, the airport to security, through security and walking actually um, all the way to the gate um and we also had um on alaska airlines you were able to board a plane as well and basically demonstrate what it's like to assist or guide a guide dog team uh to their seats with social distancing and, and that kind of stuff um it's uh it is audio described uh even though it's really not meant to, you know, it's not aimed at us as guide dog users. Nonetheless, it is audio described. And we have had some requests of maybe producing another version of it that would be um, targeting the, the, the guide dog users and, and answering those questions. And we, we, you know, that's a project on, uh, on our radar screen, but we're not working on it uh, as of yet. Um, what is important for us with this project, obviously, is to train the air travel industry on how to do it. But it's also a demonstration of the power of collaborations. And I think what uh, Nick was just talking about, and I think one of the questioner, questioners was addressing the necessity of infrastructure and universal design and those kind of things. All of those are important, but honestly, in our small little project here, which took several months, by the way, and thousands of dollars. What was proven to us is that it's going to take much more than coming up with an idea. You know, what Nick is doing is critical. We need that engineering to, to come up with some solutions, but we also need each other, both as guide dog schools and as guide dog users and as consumer advocacy organizations to all pull together so that we can reinforce that and encourage and frankly sometimes maybe even <laughs> guide forcefully car companies and, and, and even government agencies to pay attention to that universal design and the benefit that can come from it for all of us, blind, visually impaired or otherwise. Uh, so I hope that we can keep that in mind once you see that video and we'll send you a link of that video. Andrea, if you don't have the link, we'll be happy to send it to you again and share it with everybody. Just keep in mind that that power of collaboration and the benefit of collaboration for all of us to meet our, our needs on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I, if we have a few more minutes, maybe we can open it for some questions, Andrea, especially for those who may have seen it or have concerns about this concept. 
Absolutely. And I just want to, again, apologize for, for my um, not being necessarily clear enough with what I needed, what we needed. And I do have the link and I absolutely will send it out um, to the um, GDI lists. And I'll also send it to Janet to put onto the ACB list. So anybody who is registered for the convention will be able to, to get access to that link without any, absolutely, it's not right this second, but it will absolutely happen before the end of the day. Um, but I know there are some people who have seen it. And I think that, that certainly those questions, and, and I think that you um, may have touched on this, but I just want to re revisit it for a moment, is that so it's really cool that this is a, a video to um, help people who are helping us, because we know, I know as a guide dog user, as a blind person using a cane, how to get through um, the airport. But I, it's clear lots of people don't know how to assist me with that. How are you going to get this video into the right hands? And again, I'm probably have you've touched on this, but I, I just want to re revisit that. Sure. sure. We have um, been uh, obviously talking with consumer groups, different, uh, we, we presented at the NFB convention a couple of weeks ago. We're doing this today. We presented at some uh, state conventions as well. Our partners are also showing this at, uh, in, in the professional circles. Alaska Airlines is playing this to their staff quite often um, for training purposes. Uh, we presented at A4A, which is the trade group for airlines in the United States, major trade group. We presented that video to them and was well received. We have um, shared it with the OT and, and that was well received by them as well. Uh, so we're basically trying to uh, reach out to anybody and everybody who can put this video for free in front of some eyeballs and next to some ears <laughs> for people to, to uh, just watch it and not be intimidated and overwhelmed when they see a guide dog team coming and they're thinking, oh my God, we can't touch them. They can touch us, coronavirus, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so what, what we need to do now, and I urge all of us here on the call to do, is to really think hard about, do we have any contacts at our local airport, no matter how small or how big it is, or at a local airline or big airline, I guess, as well, so that we can share that link with them and say, you know, this link may be good for your staff as part of your professional training. Uh, we all need to pull together to do this so that we can, we can show it. And the other thing I want to add is um, those of you who were attending or who saw our session that we sponsored on Friday uh, about the ACAA, um, you heard from uh, ODO, the Open Doors Organization, and their SATS program uh, dealing with the forms, the, the, AD, the, the DOT forms for flights. Um, ODO has a lot of connections with airlines and people in the business and the trade, and they're also showing that video quite widely and, and sending it to their contacts and pushing it as well. So we're approaching this at several fronts. Uh, and, and, you know, if you know of a website that will benefit from posting this on their websites, you can reach out to either Guide Dogs for the Blind or CNI, and uh, we're happy to help you um, share that link. I would, this is Chelsea. I would, I would just second that. Um, if you have any contacts with your local airports or um, friends or family that, you know, work for a particular airline, email, email, email the link to the video like crazy. 
Um, cause yeah. the more, the more people that, you know, it gets into their hands and, and in front of their faces, the better. So we've also shared this link with other guide doc schools. And if any of the guide doc schools online here don't have the link yet or misplaced it or would like to receive it again, please let us know. We're happy to share that with you. Uh, ultimately, we really want to facilitate that travel for guide doc teams. Fantastic. This is Andrea. Thank you guys so much. Again, I, I am very sorry we don't have the video, but what's been really interesting because is that we've gotten to hear more from the two of you than we would have if we had the video. So I'm going to, I'm going to use that as my silver lining for the day. Um, and, it, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned and, um, and, and sort of presented the challenge to each of us because the, the world is actually smaller than it seems. And I just seeing, listening to you, I was thinking about at least two people that I know of that work either for an airport or for an airline. And if, you know, you take that person and they tell two people and pretty soon we've got this thing going everywhere and that's fantastic. Um, we're running we're sort of, we have time for maybe one question, but we do have to be really respectful of the closing time of the session, which is 345. So um, I don't know if there are any raised hands or if um, there's anything sort of in, 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 in wrapping up um, that anyone wants to touch on before we get to that magical moment when I have to give the oh so secret closing code for this clap for this pre- um, session. All right, we have eight hands raised. Oh dear, we definitely don't have time for that. <laughs> no, we don't. Penny, you may unmute. Hey, it's me. Um, I uh, just wanted to compliment Nick and his colleague on an excellent presentation. And I actually put my hand down because someone else asked my question. Um, but um, this has been fabulous, Andrea. Thank you so much. And uh, that's really all I have to say. Let's let somebody else ask a question. Thanks so much, Penny. You're welcome. All right. Our next hand is 518, area code 518, ending 517. You may unmute. This is Mary Beth, and I just had a quick um, question about collaboration. Um, at the seminar on Friday, they mentioned the possibility of um, the guide dog schools collaborating um, in some respects for verification um, with the airlines. And, and my other question was, do you anticipate that the air, airlines will eventually collaborate with each other? So that if you put in, I as a guide dog user, put in a form at, you know, Alaska Airlines that, you know, two months down the road, United will also get a copy if I need them to have it. Thank you. Well, this is a, an involved question. So I'm, I'm um, going to ask you to, uh, maybe we can, I can take this question later from you feel free to call, to contact me but in brief i think we are critical in driving that bus right now we can sit back and see if they will collaborate or not or we can give them directions and show them how the collaboration can be beneficial for them and i think we we can do that there's a lot of room for for discussion there that, that some of them are open about it and it's moving in that direction uh so i am quite hopeful and uh, frankly quite confident that that there's going to be a lot of development in the coming months in that direction. This is Andrea again. I, um, in, in the interest of time, we've only have two minutes left and I um, want to be sure, as I said, to respect the, the, the codes because people who are here um, have other sessions to go to. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank all of the panelists today. I know that this, panel has changed up its um, complexion over the planning period. And I'm really excited that we've been able to bring 
these two really interesting and um, really connected topics since we all have to do with traveling, whether it's by autonomous vehicle or through the airport. Um, we're really talking about getting places, getting there efficiently, effectively, independently, and with uh, an inclusive environment that will make this not just really friendly and usable for people who are blind and visually impaired, but ultimately better for everybody. So you guys have all done a great job today, and thank you so much. Again, another amazing group of people who made this convention fabulous and made me look awesome as one of the coordinators. So that's fabulous for me. Andrea, can we give, can we give our contacts before? I was just, before yes, I was just going to ask you this. If you could each give your contact information um, so that people can email you directly if they, and I will, I, when I send out the information about this session um, in the video, I'll include that information as well. Go ahead, Chelsea. Um, I'm going to give Melissa's contact info since she was the one, um, and I'll give mine as well, but Melissa was the one that really worked with, with Rabia and, and Guide Dogs on this. So her email is malman. that's A-L-L-M-A-N, at seeingeye.org. Um, or you can also email advocacy at seeingeye.org. And then my email address, I am backwards because I'm always backwards, is white, W-H-I-T-E, the letter C, at seeingeye.org. Okay, and my contact is uh, R-D, as in David, O-W, that's R-D-A-W, at guidedogs.com. That's R-D-A-W at guidedogs.com and you can always step into our website to get the video link if you'd like and the website is guidedogs.com thank, thank you. you both and this is andrea again um i just want to make sure that i understood that we that we as individuals can grab that link and share it as we choose we don't need we don't need to contact either of the schools we can just that link is out there for people to share at with um, with wonderful abandon. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, terrific. Again, to um, Dr. Dujici and to Mr. Fink and to um, Robia and to Chelsea. Andrew, do you have the closing code? I'm, I'm doing it right now. Okay, good. <laughs> so I finally did it right. Uh, <laughs> I want to say thank you. And for the closing code, it is 892 three, seven. Thanks everyone. And if you're able to join us tomorrow, thank you so much. Bye-bye.